Hi folks, welcome to the World Nation podcast with myself, World to Explorer, Lawrence Waller. In our last instalment, we heard from second East York's veteran, Douglas Parker, about his wartime service in the North Western European Theatre. Today, we're heading to the Netherlands as I'm joined by Dutch historian and battlefield guide, Joel Stoppels, to discover more about Operation Amherst in April 1945. In season two's episode six, we should be examining the, this Allied airborne operation carried out by members of the French SAS regiments, which were dropped behind German lines in the Netherlands during the final stages of the war in Europe. It will see us touching on the French SAS regiment's formation and experiences during the Second World War, the tactics they employed, as well as the fierce fighting experienced by the Canadian army in the Netherlands, including around the Dutch city of Groningen. If you wish to help support the World Nation podcast by becoming a supporter on Patreon, you can get directly involved in the podcast with questions you wish to be answered and have your say on topics you wish to hear discussed. And that's just the beginning. Discover more today by visiting our Patreon page, patreon.com slash ww2nationhq. The link to this is also in our bio below. Thank you very much for your support. Anyhow, without further ado, let's dive right into our latest instalment here on the World Station podcast. So, Joel, great to have you here with us today. Am I right in thinking this was the last Allied airborne operation of the war in the Netherlands? Yes, it, uh, it was, Lawrence. Uh, thank you for having me in, uh, in the show. Yeah, the Operation Emirates wasn't an airborne operation. The last airborne operation conducted by 702 French paratroopers, and it was to support the advance of the 2nd Canadian Division in April 1945 in the province of Drenthe in the Netherlands. Okay, well, let's go right back to the beginning of this operation and look at who was involved and why it was seen as so important to carry out this operation behind enemy lines in those final few days of the Second World War. Uh, this, this operation was carried out, like you said there, by French SAS regiments, or as we would probably refer to them more commonly as battalions. Can you tell us a little bit about these men and you know, the unit's history and when they were founded? Yeah, all companies involved in Operation Amherst, uh, Amherst as well as others, were organized into, uh, into special groups uh, for this operation. It was called Sticks. And uh, a total of 47 sticks were involved in which were composed of two French Special Air Service regiments or battalions. And in addition the, to the two French regiments, uh, a Belgian regiment was uh, deployed also during this operation. In uh, October 1940, uh, General Charles de Gaulle um, decided to, uh, to found uh, the French parachutist uh, special Air Service Unit, and uh, this was given the name the first company, the Infantry de la Air. And uh, early 1941, they were the first uh, yeah, soldiers to be jumped uh, as a special agent uh, above France. And uh, in, in July 1941, uh, one of the of a big unit of this uh, company was uh, sent to the Middle East. On to participate here in the in the fighting against the German Africa Corps, and uh, and after that uh, in February of that year, uh, the first company, around 50 men, were in Egypt. Um, um, how do you say it? Um, they were in in the in Egypt. They were uh, uh, attached to the Special Air Service from uh, David Sterling. So they have already uh, a, a big history of, of fighting 
already uh, from 1941. So you can already say when we, they are dropped in, uh, in Drenthe, they had already a lot of experience in airborne operations. Following their deployment in the Middle East, uh, you said in 1941, where were these French SAS battalions deployed next before Operation Amherst? The, the Special Air Service were uh, dropped uh, in the night of 5th till the 6th of June 1944 during D-Day. Um, around 130 French parachutists of the 4th Regiment Special Air Service, and they were dropped in Bretagne. And their deployment um, existed around two months. And, at the, and their goal was to, together with the French resistance, uh, to yeah, attack the Germans behind enemy lines, to block the, the German supply lines to supply lines to Normandy. So that was uh, in the end their target and their mission when they were dropped in Britannia during D-Day. On, uh, in the night of 5th of the 6th of June 1944. Their mission uh, was a success, but, but uh, nee, 77 Paras were killed and 179 were wounded or missing. So that uh, was a huge toll for, for the French paratroopers when they were dropped in Normandy in the night of 5th of 6th June 1944. Then the 3rd Regiment Special Air Service was uh, deployed in Burgundia to attacking there the Germans behind enemy lines. And they were um, they were working with special, special jeeps. It was called commando jeeps. And in December 1944, the French were deployed during the Battle of the Ardennes. Uh, and in February 1945, the both regiments were uh, back in England waiting for their next mission. And it was, of course, Operation Amherst, the last airborne operation in the Netherlands. So that, uh, that was... For them, the last operation, but they have already a, a long history when you look from the 5th of 6th of June 1944 all the way up to yeah, uh, Operation Amherst in April 1945. Joel, maybe you can take us through what the situation was like in this area of the Netherlands in March and April 1945, where these guys were going to be deployed. Um, on uh, 28 of March 1945, the 21st Army Group began discussing the possibility of engaging in operation with a Special Air Service Brigade under the command of the newly appointed Brigadier James Colvert. And uh, the topic of, uh, of the use of airborne troops in the Netherlands was in cooperation with the 2nd Canadian Arm, uh, Army. And the Colvert explained the theory of dropping airborne troops in groups of about 15 spread over a wide area ensuring that their actions were as large and effective as possible and to prevent any regrouping by a retreating German army in the northern part of the Netherlands. The Canadian staff in Calvert identified an area in the northeast of the Netherlands where paratrooper landings could successfully occur. And then on 4 April 1945, an agreement was reached on the appropriate drop zones and a plan was drafted that around 900 men and 80 troops were dropped. And in the end, 702 men were deployed during Operation Amherst. Now, uh, when you look at uh, the situation in April 1945, then uh, there were three Canadian divisions operating in the northern eastern part of the Netherlands. And whose main purpose was to advance to Emden 
and Willemshaven and, of course, Oldenburg. Now, the French paratroopers would be parachuted into the triangle Groningen, Couvorden and Zwolle around 48 hours before the Canadian vanguard. So when the Canadians started their operations, and it uh, was around Nijmegen all the way up to the northern part of the Netherlands, um, the French paratroopers were dropped behind enemy lines, and their aim was to prevent the destruction of 18 bridges so that the Canadian vanguard could advance quickly, create confusion, and prevent the opponents from regrouping and taking defensive positions. And the French would also provide guides and information for the Canadians and the region's resistance movement. Now, it was not an easy task to drop uh, uh, the paratroopers in a certain order of the correct targets. Uh, 47 planes, each loaded with a stick of 15 paratroopers, personal combat equipment and containers with weapons and other supplies left from three airports in southern England. So it was Dunmore, Shepgrove and Riverhall. And every four minutes, an aircraft took off with the first airplane departing at around uh, 8.30 p.m. on 7 April 1945. And the first stick dropped later that night around 11.45 p.m. over Drenthe, and the last parachutist dropped around 1 a.m. One plane had problems and could not leave, so his stick was dropped 24 hours later. Um, when you look at this uh, complete operation and in a time frame of the liberation of the Netherlands, it's a really surprising operation. Not a lot of people know about this operation. And the Canadian division, it's especially when you're looking at the 2nd Canadian Infantry Division, was moving up uh, from uh, the area of Holton in the province of Zwolle and their end of their operation, in, the, in this case was it Operation Plunder, was the city, the big city of Groningen. Now, when we look at the German defense in uh, Drenthe, then we know that there the was a defense by a uh, German Fallschirmjäger, but uh, the, the most of the, the German troops were retreating to the northern part of the Netherlands, so all the way up to Groningen and mostly all the way up to the port of Delsel, that's in the northern part of, of, uh, of the province of Groningen. And uh, that was also the main escape route of the German soldiers all the way up to Emden. Uh, so they get a boat at the port of Delsel, and hopefully they were brought in in Emden at the harbor. So it was also, uh, an, also the province of Drenthe and Groningen were both uh, routes that the German soldiers take, especially officers, to escape to uh, Emden, in the port of Emden in Germany. You mentioned that obviously the German opposition these guys would be facing. Um, what sort of numbers are in this region? Yeah, we don't have exact the numbers because uh, there are not a lot of reports. We know from the intel Canadian intelligence, intelligence reports that the Germans were operating so-called Kampfgruppen around 100 to 200 men, uh, but the motiv motivation was not really high, and a lot of German soldiers already saw that the, the, the war was lost. Uh, but we have mixed groups, because you can imagine that a lot of German troops who were retreating in the Netherlands, uh, consisting of, of all different kinds of 
kampgroepen, uh, Luftwaffe units, uh, Kriegsmarine, because there were uh, a lot of Kriegsmarine units in the northern part of the Netherlands, because Del Sel and, and, and Leeuwarden was also uh, um, ports and bunkers consisting of the Atlantic Wall, so also operating with the Kriegsmarine. Uh, but we know from the Canadian intelligence that mostly of the Canadian troops, of the German troops, were not really motivated. It's really interesting because I had a um, uh, research in one uh, in the Canadian archives and I found there an intelligence report of an interrogation report of six young German soldiers of 16 years old who were captured near the town of Assen. That's around two miles uh, in front of Groningen. And they were they, the young boys were explaining that they had a really quick training and were uh, like uh, working as, as a sort of uh, couriers uh, uh, between the German, uh, German lines. And they were deployed and uh, were equipped with Panzerfaust to, um, uh, yeah, to slow down the Canadian advance. And when they saw the Canadians, and the German officer uh, was fleeing away and the guys were waving with white flags and were captured. But the, the, the mainly interesting thing of this, this report was that, um, that the, the, the young German soldiers explaining to the Canadian interrogators that they were yeah, full of motivation to fight off any Canadian attack and that they still believed in, uh, in Adolf Hitler. So you can say at the end of the war, you have different motivations, but the German soldiers, as most of them were belonging to the Kriegsmarine. They were stationed already from 1940 in the province of Drenthe or Groningen and were not really motivated to fight at the end of the war against an hardened Canadian soldier or in this case, a French paratrooper. Well, going back to the operation uh, and its planning, can you sort of take us through how that developed? Uh, all companies in, in involved in, in Operation Amherst uh, were called in, in, were organized in so-called uh, groups and called sticks. And during this operation or Operation Amherst, each stick had around 50 men, 11 corporals and soldiers, two officers and two non-commissioned officers. And an average, each company had six sticks. And a total of 47 sticks were involved, in which were composed of two French Special Air Service regiments or battalions. And in addition to the two French parachute uh, regiments, uh, a Belgian regiment was deployed under the name Operation Largefoot. They were equipped also with the special commando jeeps uh, to uh, reinforce. The, the French paratroopers in certain actions and also to uh, be as a reconnaissance unit for the first Polish armored division that was operating uh, under the Canadian command, also in the northern part of the Netherlands. Uh, two experienced officers led the regiments in Operation Amherst. It was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Jacques Paris and the Bolaire command, commanded uh, the third. Uh, regiment and uh, Special Air Service Major Pierre Pouch Samson was in command of the 2nd 4th Regiment Special Air Service. Now, what I have already explained, um, the, the 47 sticks were concentrated on a particular areas of the province of Drenthe in a specific order. Uh, for example, the sticks were 
dropped into 4, 21 and 22 in the eastern area of the operation and were responsible for the nearby rivers securing the transition from the Oostermoerse Canal and the Hunza River. Um, and the, we have a map, uh, a colleague of mine, Harold Dio, researched all the sticks where they were dropped, 47 of them, and uh, also made a detailed description of what they're facing during their operation. Now, what I already explained, uh, explained is it not really easy to, to, task the to drop the paratroopers in a certain order of on the correct targets. What I say, uh, 47 planes, each loaded with a stick of 50 paratroopers, personal combat equipment, they were equipped with uh, different kinds of weapons, uh, mostly like uh, uh, the British airborne soldiers, they had a smock, they had a bram pouches, um, yeah, and of course containers with weapons and other supplies. They were drop blind, that will say that the drop zones were not marked before the droppings took place. Uh, it was at night, so uh, you can imagine uh, it was not really good weather that uh, a lot of them uh, were spread out over a big area in the province of Drenthe. Um, that was not really a problem because most of the sticks did their work really well. But what I explained, the conditions for the drops were unfavorable. It was low cloud uh, covered with the area of operations. So instead of jumping from their usual altitude of 200 meters, the paratroopers had to jump from 600 meters with wind speeds of around 25 kilometers uh, per hour. And they landed really hard and were scattered across the drop zones in the province of Drenthe. And there were also some accidents where uh, paratroopers um, uh, hurt themselves or were seriously wounded um, and not could take uh, be in action for uh, for a couple of uh, couple of hours of the whole operation. Now, 17 of the 47 sticks landed in, in or a reasonable distance, five to eight kilometers from their designated drop zones, and 12 sticks landed uh, at a greater distances, around uh, eight to 15 kilometers from the drop zones, and one stick even arrived. 40 kilometers away in a region that already had been liberated. So that's really funny. And in addition to the troops, more than 200 containers of weapons, ammunition, and rations were also dropped too during this operation. Well, can you sort of take us through and highlight some of the sticks' actions and how the operation developed? Now, after making, uh, after the first droppings, the French paratroopers making contact with the locals and uh, the paratroopers begin with their work. Now, while searching for bridges and other targets, the best plan, something went wrong. The paratroopers fought the German troops at 10 different places in the province of Drenthe. In total, 33 paratroopers were killed uh, in various combat actions around nine locations. And... Uh, um, there were some uh, actions successful and others were less successful. Now, one of the actions of the French paratroopers was at a place called Gazelte. And uh, the sticks um, were informed that there was a headquarters of the NSKK. That was the Nationale Socialistische Kraftfahrer Corps. And there were Dutch uh, truckers, Dutch drivers, working for the German Wehrmacht, uh, driving trucks. Uh, so they were not really hardened front troops, but they had their headquarters in Gazelte. 
And the local population were not really happy with them. They were uh, collaborators, seen as collaborators. So one of the resistance fighters, was called Pronk, uh, was informed about the landings of the French paratroopers in the Staatsbossen in Gasselte. And he went on his bike to the French paratroopers, informed them that there was a headquarters of the NSKK in the center of this little town. Uh, these French paratroopers decided to uh, attack uh, this headquarters uh, in Gasselte. And uh, um, on the 8th of May, they go on their way to uh, this, uh, this headquarters. The French paratroopers collected their weapons, uh, gather some information, and go on their way to the rectory where the headquarters was of the NSKK in this little town of Gasselt. And the plan was to, um, to attack this monastery of, or this uh, rectory on clear day, so no, not at night, uh, from three sides. And then after the action, the French paratroopers had yellow um, scarves with them to um, there was an agreement with all the paratroopers who were involved in this operation or this attack on the headquarters that after the action, they were uh, getting their yellow scarves around them as a sign that the operation or the attack was finished. And then they're going to retreat back to uh, the forest of Assen, the Staatsbos. Now, it was clear day. It was around uh, the afternoon that uh, the French paratroopers were attacking the uh, rectory. Um, there was fierce resistance by uh, the Dutch uh, NSKK drivers. Uh, even a guy was firing from behind the front door, killing one of the uh, French paratroopers. And in the end, um, uh, the, uh, there were some captures, and there were French uh, paratroopers give the signal, okay, the attack is finished. And we captured two officers and the rest of uh, the, the, the prisoners were taken away to uh, the forest of Achazelte. Not really a clever decision because the French paratroopers had only rations for 48 hours. And now they also need to share them with their German prisoners in the forest. What they, were, um, what they forgot that there were still two of them in the cellar of the rectory. And these two German or two D uh, Dutch collaborators um, were still hiding in the cellar. And a lot of civilians of the population of uh, Gasselte uh, saw that the French paratroopers were, were leaving. So they decided to get to the rectory and get all the food that there was left or some, some things else to loot the whole uh, rectory. So a lot of people go on away, loot the rectory, uh, they stole uh, some food, and, and all the way they go back to their houses and eating the food that they have missed for five years of German occupation. The two guys, the two collaborators in the cellar, saw that there were the, the civilians were looting, so they were escaping and go to the town of Assen and warn there the local German officer from the Luftwaffe that the French paratroopers were attacking the rectory. Now, this Luftwaffe officer decided to collect his men and go on his way to the town of 
Gasselte. When he arrived, he met the, the, the mayor. It was also a collaborator. And he told them that he wanted to collect all the men that were still in the village. So the men were collected. So the German soldiers go along all the houses to get the men and collect them on um, uh, uh, a little square. And in the end, they were locked up in the church of Gasselte with the warning that when nobody was um, uh, declaring or saying that he was uh, involved in the looting, they're going to blow up the whole church. Now, that was really a big shock for the local population. A lot of women were crying, uh, the children were still at home, and all the men were locked up in the church. The, uh, the, the mayor, the collaborator, was still negotiating with the German officer, telling him that it's not worth and uh, that they need to ma uh, make another decision, but not to blow up the whole church. What happens in the end, six guys were uh, volunteering and saying, okay, we were involved in looting the rectory, and they were making prisoner, and they were, bring, they, they were uh, sent to the prison of Assen, and were liberated by the Canadians later. The French paratroopers were still in the forest, uh, but the, the supplies were run out, so they made contact with their radios with, uh, with the UK, with the United Kingdom, with England, and they arranged that the typhoon was, was dropping some supplies. So in the end, they had also supplies for, uh, for the German soldiers that were captured. And this was one of the actions of the uh, Operation Amherst. But the interesting aspect of this operation is that when you see when the French paratroopers are doing quick actions, uh, the local population are believing that they are liberated. So they come out of the houses celebrating their liberation and then, then the Germans go, uh, are coming back because the French paratroopers were commandos. They were intended to do quick actions and not to liberate a place and stay there when the, uh, until the Canadians arrive. So um, there was not only in Gasselte, but also other places in Drenthe where, um, where the French were involved in heavy fighting. They were retreating and then the Germans arriving later, uh, making punishment on the civilians that were still on the streets. So you can say, uh, the operation was also really dangerous, also for the, 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 the population of the province of Drenthe. Now, what I already say, the, the paratroopers carried out many small combat actions in, in difficult terrain, uh, varying levels of success. Eh? The area offered little cover and protection because it was really flat, only the forest in Drenthe is a heavy forest area, um, had some protection and most was controlled by, by German troops. Now, the plan had been put to the, to the paratroopers in for, that they, they were in for 48 hours, but some sticks in the northern areas fought for five or six days, and then the Canadians arrived. Um, yeah, after the war, Queen Juliana of the Netherlands awarded the Bronze Lion to the two regiments, and this medal recognized the extreme bravery and leadership in battle and is awarded by a royal degree. And uh, it, it was for the, the French paratroopers because in the end, they captured important bridges and uh, make sure that the Canadian advance to Groningen was easy 
especially for the Canadians. Um, so, but at a cost of 33 paratroopers uh, that were killed. Uh, so that was a, a, a high toll for a, a couple of days for this airborne operation. The operation was obviously, I'm guessing, a success. Uh, can you sort of take us through what objectives were met in terms of, I think, the original targets were control of certain bridges to aid with the advance of the Canadian forces. Were most of those captured? Were any of them destroyed? There were some bridges destroyed, of course, but uh, the French paratroopers in, uh, informed the Canadians also which detour they can take to capture a bridge that was still intact. Um, the, the French paratroopers had also the so-called Jetburg teams that made uh, contact with the uh, local resistance. Mostly the Jetburg teams were, all, uh, that were teams of three persons, mostly an officer and an, an American, Canadian or, or French one. And uh, it was also a, a local of a resistance fighter from the Netherlands or uh, that's making contact with the local resistance to organize them and, and to use them um, also as a sort of guide. Um, also during Operation Amherst, there was in Westerbork, the little town of Westerbork, nearby Camp Westerbork, uh, because we had also uh, the transition of the you know, transition camp or uh, a transport camp Westerbork, uh, where Anna Frank was deported to Auschwitz. Um, this uh, action on in Westerbork was against the headquarters of a German general who was stationed over there and was involved in the defense of the province of Drenthe. And he was seriously wounded during an action of the French paratroopers. So you can say that in the end, the actions, what they did, were really successful. Because when the Canadians arrived, for example, in Westerbork, the German officers were already fleeing to Groningen. So they did a really good job in, in, in doing this quick actions against headquarters, uh, but also German strongholds and, and, and bridges. Also, one, one of their tasks was to capture the airfields of Ilde, Havelte and Steenwijk. Now, in the end, that was not really a success. Uh, there, there were nearby the, the airfields, but the airfield, the German airfield in Hilde, in Groningen, for example, uh, was never captured by the, uh, the French paratroopers. You mentioned there that there was obviously Belgium SAS forces uh, involved in sort of a, another operation, sort of alongside Operation Amherst. What, how did their operation progress and how did it obviously overlap with the French forces? Uh, the, the, um, uh, because of the bad weather, the, the jeeps were not dropped during Operation Amherst, and it was really uh, frustrating for uh, for um, uh, Brigadier James Calvert because you need special jeeps for uh, maneuverability and to do quick actions. So. Uh, and when Operation Emmers was already taking place, they bringing the jeeps to Goevorden, and from Goevorden they arrived at certain places, at certain, at certain sticks uh, of 15 men. Now, when you look at Operation Larkswood, the Belgians were operating together with the 1st Polish Armored Division, and they were mainly doing reconnaissance tasks. 
so that we're really quick in capturing uh, a couple of cities and they were really uh, quickly arriving in front of Groningen and then the orders came to liberate mostly the eastern part of uh, of Groningen so that could be Winschoten and other places but the main task of them was also to strengthen Operation Amherst um, to be at certain places um, but also evacuate wounded for example How did the further progress of the advance in the northern part of Netherlands develop? What did it look like after this operation, I mean? Now, Operation Amherst was a, a, a big success and the province of Drenthe was liberated in a week. So that was really quick. Um, the Second Canadian Division had some fighting in Hoogehalen, uh, but not really fierce fighting. Um, and they arrived on the southern part of Groningen on April the 13th, 1945. Now, we think that the, the rest of the Netherlands was easily liberated. It's, it's, that was not really the case. Uh, the 2nd Canadian Infantry Division sending in a company of uh, Canadian soldiers with a, a squadron of tanks of the Fort Garry Horse on 13 April, Friday the 13th of April, 1945, around 4 o'clock. And they expected not a really big um, defense of Groningen, this city, or uh, German resistance. So they were really in the back of the head that, that the, the liberation was really easy. But heavy fighting broke out at the outskirts of Groningen, near Paterswoldseweg, and already 16 Canadians were killed on this Friday the 13th. And that makes uh, the staff of the second Canadian division, uh, really frustrating. A.B. Matthews, the, the major general uh, from the second Canadian infantry division, his own words were, this gonna be a tough one. And he decided to, de to deploy his whole division, around 20,000 men, to capture the, sixth, uh, the city of Groningen. They were fighting for, uh, from two sides, from the southern part and the northeastern part where they used the little town of Hoogkerk as a sort of uh, yeah, hub to capture that northern uh, part of Groningen. Now, four days of heavy fighting, street fighting, civilians were caught in the fighting and were not evacuated. Um, and on 16 April 1945, on the Monday around one o'clock, the German garrison commanders decided to surrender. Uh, and then the city of Groningen was liberated, but the costs were really high. 110 civilians were killed. Around 43 Canadians were killed. 166 were wounded. And over 300 buildings were destroyed or da damaged by the fighting. There are some funny stories about this battle. And, and there's also funny stories when happening, especially in the northern part of the Netherlands, is that there was a, guy, uh, there was a, a Canadian officer Frank Holm, who was involved in the street fighting, and he was with the Calgary Highlanders, and he's setting up his tactical headquarters in one of the houses at the Kranerweg. And he said, uh, uh, tell uh, one of his men to set up a brand machine gun on a small wooden table in front of a window. And then he heard the sound of somebody moving out of the cellar. 
and it was an elderly lady, and she started to making coffee. But then her eyes went really big because she saw this Brengen on this small wooden table in front of the window firing at a German truck further on the road. And she get a pillow and asked this soldier to lay the pillow with his tripod or his tripod on the pillow because she was afraid that he's going to damage her little table. And then she's starting again making coffee for the guys and she give them all the cups of coffee. Now that's an example how the civilian population reacts on the liberation of the northern part of the Netherlands. And that's also the reason why 110 civilians were killed in the city of Groningen. But was it over? No, it was not over. Because the 2nd Canadian Infantry Division was relieved by three battalions of the 3rd Canadian Infantry Division. And they were uh, they were ordered to make the first contacts around the, the, the defense line around the port of Delcel. And it was by the Canadians called the so-called Delcel Pocket. It consisted of machine guns nests, barbed wire, minefields, a lot of German artillery, uh, calibers between 88 and 12.8 centimeters, flag cannons. And they were built as a protection for the harbor of Emden. Now, you can imagine that most of the Germans were stationed around Delsel from the 1940s. So they were really, they know the area really well. They, they used the cannons a lot of time to practice on land targets. So the Canadians yeah, um, had a tough job to, uh, to, yeah, to capture the last German stronghold around the port of Delsel. Now, the three battalions attacked was the giant rifles, Canadian Scotties, and the Royal Winnipeg Rifles. And they make the first contact with this heavy defensive line. The Canadian Scotties lost completely their D company in an attack on 3 and 20 April 1945 on a little place called Wageborg. And it was a shock for the whole battalion because there were a couple of so uh, officers killed that set foot on 6th of June 1944 uh, on the beaches in Normandy and were killed in a place called Wageborg, and nobody knows it. Now, the three battalions were released by the 5th Canadian Armored Division. They were sent in in January 1945 from Italy, and they get the task to clearing the last German resistance. And it was two weeks of heavy fighting, uh, bad weather. And uh, eventually, on the 2nd of May 1945, the German garrison, uh, garrison commander surrendered. And the last Canadian soldier who'd been killed on a Dutch soil in the Netherlands was killed on the 2nd of May, around 2 o'clock, in a place called Geesweer, nearby Delcel. It was John Gerard Spicer of the Irish Regiment of Canada. And we know he was the last Canadian soldier who's been killed during fighting actions, so not later by accidents, fighting actions on Dutch soil. Now, I, uh, I had an eyewitness account of one of the guys from the Cape Britain Highlanders of Canada, a regiment of the 5th Canadian Armoured Division. And this guy uh, explains in, in, in a good eyewitness account, the worst battle I ever been in was the battle for the Delcel pockets. Now, you can imagine these guys were fighting from 1943 in Italy and they experienced the last battle 
as one of the bitterest of the whole war. Now, when you look at uh, the other Canadian divisions, like 2nd Canadian Infantry Division, but also the 4th Canadian Armoured Division, they were moving on the, um, the left flank of the British and attacked uh, around the Kusten Canal and Oldenburg. And also there were heavy fighting. And uh, I made an article a couple of days ago, and I was amazed by the eyewitness accounts also explaining that the worst battle was for the Kusten Canal, even worse than the Folaise Gap. So you can imagine for the Canadians, the last operations of the war really bitter. And it's, it's also called the sweetest of springs, the liberation of the Netherlands. But I think it was also one of the bloodiest months for the Canadian army, but also the rest, I think, also for the British, fighting on German soil and the last German resistance. You say it's, a, it's an area which um, many people probably haven't looked in any depth, and especially, obviously, Operation Amherst, I suppose, is an operation which people know very little about. Um, it's just sort of passed over, if that makes sense, just a footnote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, um, yeah, it, it, it is an, an, an forgotten operation. And, um, yeah, it, and, and also you can imagine it was the last stage of the war towards the war's end. And many troops have become war weary and sought to minimize their risk of becoming victims. And it was also for the French paratroopers, but also for the Canadians. Um, yeah, but the French paratroopers involved in events in Drenthe, that was between the 8th of, and, and the 12th of April 1945, bugged this trend and provided ample proof of the word of deploying special units for operations and an off-the-battered subjects among the Allies, especially at the end of the war. And I think a lot of events of the end of the war are forgotten. And I think it's important to share these stories and to keep also the memories alive, not only for the Battle of Arnhem, but also the last operations during the Second World War. What was it that made you want to examine Operation Amherst and learn more about this? Um, the, uh, because I think nobody knows about Operation Amherst. A lot of attention in the Netherlands goes to the Battle of Arnhem. Everybody knows the Battle of Arnhem because it was a movie, a, make, make, uh, a famous movie called a bridge too far. So a lot of attention goes to the Battle of Arnhem. And also people in the Netherlands thinking that the war was over after the Battle of Arnhem. But you have a really long period of the winter of 1944-1945 in the static defense around Nijmegen and Groesbeek with uh, terrible temperatures and fighting patrols on both sides. And then uh, the Canadians moved into uh, Operation Vertible. Uh, the Reichswald heavy fighting ensures over there, and they uh, crossed the border to the Netherlands again, uh, early April 1945, and all the way up to to uh, to Groningen. And I think it's really important to um, study these operations because it's uh, also there paratroopers died for our freedom but also Canadian soldiers that have died of giving their lives for the freedom that we now, where we now living. So I think it's also something you, 
as a, a responsibility to share the stories to people that uh, know nothing about the the toll that soldiers have been paid to liberate the northern part of the Netherlands. Here's a really interesting point. I had this conversation with someone else um, a while back to do with, I think it was the 6th Airborne Division um, and their role in Operation um, so Operation Plunder and Operation Vasty. It was to do with the officer in Operation Vasty we were looking at. And I think there is kind of, it gets very easily overlooked. You know, we've, we've kind of breached the, you know, the Rhine. We've made it across and it's sort of plain sailing in those last few weeks of the war, but it's anything but. The intensity almost increases. And I think that, that is sort of a popular misconception. Maybe I, I'm generalising too much here, but that people do seem to sort of overlook that. You know, it's plain sailing all the way to Berlin, so to speak, but far from it. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's um, and I don't know why it is, because, is it because of the, the, the battles like Normandy um, and, and, and the Brits far and, and um, gets a lot of attention? Look at, uh, for example, uh, Operation Vertebrae on 8th of February 1945. It was a huge and a huge operation. Start line from Groesbeek all the way in the Reichswald and to the Rhine at Basel. Heavy, heavy fighting over there. But uh, I get, for as a tour guide, I get hardly no requests for Operation Vertebrae or the Battle for Del Sale, for example, or Operation Amherst. Mostly the requests are coming for the Battle of Arnhem. And it's really sad to see it because I think the guys deserve it also more uh, recognition for what they did in uh, in not only April 1945, but also other theaters that have not a lot of attention. Joel, thank you very much for that. That was absolutely fascinating learning about Operation Amherst and also the Canadians' progress and liberation of the north of the Netherlands. Thank you, uh, Lawrence. Thank you for listening, and also a big thank you, Joel, for joining us today. I'll be sharing more info about some of the various things mentioned in this episode on the World Nation podcast on the website, as well as our social media channels. You can find all this by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at World Nation, and also Instagram at World Nation HQ, or visiting our website, www.nation.com. If you wish to help support the World Nation podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review, as is always greatly appreciated. Alternatively, you can also go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash www.nationhq. A link for this is in the podcast bar below. And there you can discover more about how you can get involved with the podcast, including being able to have your say on topics you wish for me to cover in future episodes, and even sneak previews where we look ahead so you can have the opportunity to fire in questions you'd like me to put to our guest speakers. Looking ahead to the next installment of the podcast, we speak with Peter Davies, who served on one troop B squadron of the 1st East Riding Yeomanry as a gunner on a Sherman tank during the Second World War. He had originally enlisted with the RAF as a wireless operator, but then Peter transferred to the Army, which at that moment was desperately short of wireless operators. Having landed on D-Day, he and his crew fought all the way through to D-Day in May 1945, and they were incredibly lucky despite suffering several glancing blows, Peter's tank, Bandit, was never knocked out. Anyhow, until next time, this is Lawrence Waller signing off for this episode of the Walworth Nation podcast. Mm-hmm.